Let me open us with a word of prayer. Father, thank You. Thank You for the truths that we've just sung and for lifting our hearts to consider the great worth and glory of Your name. For there is no greater thing in all creation than You and Your splendor. And I pray that You would continue to open our eyes, the eyes of our heart even, even more, to perceive of Your glory in John 17, that we would be more drawn to You in Your purpose than we ever have been in our lives. We ask that You would do a work that is beyond the efforts of any man, but a work that only You in Your Spirit can do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. John 17, verses 6 through 19. I, Jesus continues in his prayer. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So when you have prayed for uh, people in our church this week, what did you pray for? How have you prayed for your family? What sort of requests have you made? How have you prayed for yourself even? Or consider this, what would you hope others are praying for you this week? In Jesus' last hours before his departure, these are the three requests that he brings before the Father that the Father might answer. These are the three things that Jesus asks for knowing he is about to depart and no longer be with his disciples. They are, as you see in your outline, keep them in your name, 
Keep them from the evil one. And keep them set apart from the world. And one of the things that stands out from this is that most of this prayer is not requests. There's only three requests he makes in this whole section, verses 6 through 19. Those three requests. Most of this prayer is actually giving reasons for why the Father should grant these requests. He's petitioning God as one might petition a sovereign or a king. Right? When you go to a king, even when you go to your boss and you want to ask for something, you don't just say, give me this. That wouldn't go well. But instead, you give good reasons for why your request should be granted. And that's what Jesus is doing here in his request for his disciples. So let's look first at his request in verses 6 through 11, which comes down to his request, keep them in your name. So again, the majority of this section is presenting the grounds for why the Father should grant this request. And the three grounds, the three reasons that Jesus gives for why God the Father should keep them in your name is essentially this. Answer this request because they are genuine believers. Secondly, answer the request because they're yours. And thirdly, answer it because it will ultimately accomplish your purpose of glorifying me. The purpose of glorifying Christ. And then after that, he presents his request, which is keep them in your name. So the first reason he gives for why the Father should keep them in his name is that these are genuine believers. And this is proven in how they've already responded to Christ's teachings. In verse 6, he states that he has manifested the Father's name to them. Now, the word name, as we saw a couple weeks ago, connotes the essence of a person. It, it, it has in, in, in line with that uh, a person's character, their purpose, their mission, their authority. We saw a couple weeks ago that Jesus would call the disciples to pray in his name. And his point was, pray the same thing that I would pray. Pray in my place. I am not going to be here My mission is now your mission. Pray as if you were me. That's the point. We are praying to pray as if we have the authority and purpose of Christ himself. And so when Jesus says that he's manifested the Father's name to the disciples, he says that what he's saying is he has made known both the the person, the character of God, as well as the purpose or the, the plan of God in sending his son. So both the person and plan of the Father. So he's revealed to the disciples the character of God in his teachings, helped them understand who God really is, because he has known him from the foundation from in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. But also he's made known to them God's purpose in sending him into the world, his plan of redemption. So he's revealed to them both who God is and God's purpose, and particularly his purpose about himself. And Jesus affirms they have received what he's taught them when he says, they have kept your word and they believe that you have sent me. And remember that the faith of the disciples was 
very clearly confirmed back in John chapter 6, when most of those who had been following Christ walked away after they'd been offended by what Jesus had taught. When Jesus then asked them, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the second reason Jesus gives for why the Father should answer this request is not only that these disciples are genuine believers, but secondly, that these disciples are also his children. He says in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. He says, he's praying for those whom you have given me. So this is Jesus referring to God's election of the disciples from eternity past. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Actually, go ahead and flip there in your Bibles. Put your finger in John 17 and, and, and turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. It's worth seeing the connection here. Paul says this in verse 4 of chapter 1. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us, note this, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. See that? His election was for us to be adopted as His children. So our election is not just a choice of these are the people who God chose to follow, but it was an election to be his children. So when Jesus says they are yours, he's not just saying these are the guys that have followed me. He's saying these are your children, Father. They're not just my followers, but your children. And this would be like Julie asking me to take special care of Isaiah and Daniel when we go off to school and then say, not, don't just take care of them because you're the dean of students at St. Stephen's. Take care of them because they're your children. Right? There's a weight to they are your children. You are their father. The responsibility that goes with that, the, the affection and love and commitment is different than just the role of a dean. And Jesus is reminding the Father that. They are your children, just as I am your child. So Jesus grounds his prayer, first of all, by pointing to the disciples' faith, then to the Father's special love for them as his children. The third reason he gives for why the Father should listen to his request is that it will actually work for the glory of the Son, which is why God sent the Son into the world. We saw that back Earlier in the prayer, he says this in verse 10, I am glorified in them. Now, we've we've seen that glory is a massive theme in this prayer. It's massive. It's intricately tied to the person and purpose of Christ. We see this first in verse four, John 17, verse four. Where he says, I've glorified you on earth 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then also in verse 5, where he says, Father, glorify me in your presence. And here in verse 10, the glory of Christ is tied to the disciples' grasp of that purpose. They have glorified Christ by recognizing who he truly is and why he came. And they're going to continue to glorify him as they carry on that mission for why he came into the world. So they glorify Christ, first of all, by recognizing who he is, recognizing his purpose. And then secondly, they glorify him by continuing in that understanding, finishing what the work that Christ gave them to do. So these are the three reasons he gives for why the father should listen. What was it again that Jesus asked for? We see it in verse 11. He says, Father, keep them in your name. Again, Jesus' request here to keep them in their name, in in the Father's name, is uh, it stems from the fact that He's going to be leaving them. Jesus is about to depart. And so He's asking the Father that He will continue the work in and through the disciples that He's already begun in them. Again, remember that in your name signifies understanding both the person and purpose. The truth about God and His redemptive purpose. So Jesus has already revealed what God's, God's person and, and His purpose, and the disciples received it. And now He's just simply asking, continue that work. Continue that work in the disciples. And the result of answering that request is that the disciples would be one. Just as the Trinity is one. And that's speaking to unity. That they may be one. So he's speaking about the unity amongst the disciples. And he points to the Trinity as a model of what that unity is supposed to look like. They're supposed to be unified just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are unified in their purpose. Now unity is simple for the Trinity. Because they're without sin, and they are in fact one, tri-unity, one essence, three persons, one essence. How can unity be accomplished by Christians when we still struggle with the ongoing effects of sin, and we don't always agree? How can this prayer that Christ gives actually be accomplished? Especially when you consider the fact that throughout history, Christians have been massively divided on their understanding of both what is truth and what is the purpose of the church. Throughout history, they've been divided on it. So how can this request actually be accomplished? I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that unity in any situation, in any institution... Unity is impossible unless there is an agreed authority and an agreed purpose. I think almost all Christians would agree that the authority in the church is Jesus himself. It's his church. He's the head. But I think we often struggle to come to grips with how Jesus as the authority then instructs his followers. How do we know what our authority wants us to do? 
That's where confusion comes in. But this is why he gave us the scriptures. So there wouldn't be confusion. He gave us his word. He's been talking about this to the disciples earlier on in, the, in, the, in John in chapters 14 through 16 about the spirit coming and giving the truth. He gave them this revelation so that they wouldn't be confused. So the unity is based on the fact that the spirit's going to come and reveal everything else that they need to know. So there would be no confusion. So this prayer stems from the understanding they're going to have the truth. And if they have that, there's no reason why they should not be unified. So the simple answer on how unity can be achieved is through the disciples adhering to the word of God. But we can't just be unified if we simply believe the same thing. That's actually not even enough. We also have to be unified in agreeing on what our purpose is. We have to have the same purpose. For instance, if you have two people who are tied together back to back, they might both agree that they need to go forward in order to get to their destination. But unless they can agree which direction is forward, they're not going to make much progress. They need to agree on what, they're, what direction they're trying to head and be unified in that. So what is our purpose as Christians? And are you fulfilling it? See, many people think the simple purpose of a Christian is just to believe, to be saved, and then behave. That's Christianity. Believe, be saved, behave. In fact, I was just having a conversation with a student at my school. Grew up in the Christian church, and there was... Um, I was meeting with this student because of a, uh, a sin problem and we got to back to the gospel and his understanding of, of, of his salvation was, I believe in Jesus Christ, but totally ignoring this pattern of sin in his life, not recognizing there's a connection. Like you can't say that you follow Christ and continue to live with this unrepentant sin. And that was shocking to him. Because he thought, I believe in Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian. Many Christians believe that all they need to do is believe, be saved, and behave. Our purpose, to be clear, our purpose as Christians is to grow spiritually, to know God. Right? John, he, he prayed this earlier in John 17. That they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Our purpose is to grow spiritually Secondly, it's to fulfill Christ's mission, the Great Commission, which encompasses both the building up of the church, edification, as well as evangelism. So our purpose is to grow um, spiritually and to help one another grow spiritually and to help those who have not heard the gospel hear the gospel so they can grow spiritually. Right? It's for, our, for us, for one another in the church, and then for those outside the church that they might become part of the church and then grow. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. So how are you doing with this? A student's purpose is to learn. And an employee's purpose is to do the job that they're hired to do. And if you were to get an evaluation at school or at your job, 
How would they evaluate you on accomplishing that purpose? How would God evaluate you on accomplishing these purposes of growing spiritually, helping others grow, and preaching the gospel to the lost? What grade would you get? See, Jesus is asking that the disciples would remain unified in their understanding of truth and in fulfilling their purpose. Another way to think about this is he's calling us to have a unified belief and a unified action. Right? That we're, we all are seeking to accomplish the same things with our life. How can we do that? Well, if, if the end goal of all of our lives is the exaltation of Christ in the church and of people getting saved and our own growth, there it, that, that, it's pretty simple. We need to have a unified action as well as a unified belief, a unified commitment to the Word of God. The second request that he makes is that the Father would keep them from the evil one. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the word has, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And so I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus affirms that he did this work of keeping them unified in their belief and unified in their purpose while he was with them. But now things are going to change because he's going away. He's leaving them. And he affirms that the only one who was lost during his ministry was Judas. But he was lost because that was part of the Father's plan, part of the eternal plan of God is revealed in the Scriptures. So Jesus then clarifies that his keeping of the disciples was not simply to guard them from falling away. It was also that they might find full joy. And if you, if you look at the prayer, that it almost seems incongruous. Where does this come from? It's like he has this little phrase about joy, and it's, it's hard to know how does that fit in. Keep them from the evil one. I gave them their word and I gave it to them that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Which, which tells us Jesus is trying to communicate the connection between knowing the truth, having a unified purpose, and joy. Joy is not just a tack on, it's part of this whole pursuit Joy is central in Christianity. He tells us that Christianity is not simply about knowing truth, it's about enjoying truth. And the joy that comes from it is not just simply having the truth and winning arguments by having the right answers. That's not the joy he's talking about. This is the joy that he has. It's Christ's joy given to them. And so Christians should ask themselves, if their truth is not accompanied with joy, is it really the truth? 
If there's no joy with your truth, is it really the truth? Because Jesus says this truth comes with joy. It's part of the package. It's for their joy. It's for your joy and my joy. So what does this joy of Christ look like? What does this look like in our life? How do you know if you have it? Well, as I thought about it, I think the most common manifestation of Christian joy is experienced when biblical truth so moves your soul, it allows it to transcend the troubles of this life. When the truths of the Scripture so move you that that truth allows you to transcend the very real troubles of this life. It puts trouble and suffering and pain in perspective and becomes more precious than anything this world might offer. And that is the truths about the gospel. It's the truths about the character of God. But that truth, whether it's sung or whether it's read, becomes everything to you. And it's precious beyond words. That's the joy. The joy of the truth. It could also be manifested when you're more moved by hearing a crowd sing, crown him with many crowns. Or when you're moved to hear a crowd sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. To hear your God and King be worshipped by people is far more moving, far more attractive than for that very same crowd to stand up and give you a standing ovation. That the praise of your king means more than anything in this life. That's the joy it's talking about. This is why Job could say in the midst of his suffering in 23.12 of his book, I have treasured your words more than my necessary food. He had been through months agonizing suffering. He says, I have treasured your words more than my necessary food. That's why David, in the midst of his persecution, could say in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These guys are speaking from experience horrendous suffering. They say, at your right hand is pleasure. The joy of truth is so real that that it's far more precious than anything that this world offers. It's so precious that a Christian is willing to lose everything that the world has to offer for the sake of Christ. And that's why Paul writes... In Philippians chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And He did count those things as loss. Paul gave up a, a wonderful career as a leader in Judaism, so that he might give his life for suffering and the spread of the gospel. 
And 2 Corinthians chapter 11 mentions multitudes of suffering that Paul went through. And he says, count it all joy. I count it all joy. That's why Moses says in Hebrews chapter 11, this is Moses' experience. The author of Hebrews says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He made that choice. He gave up. He gave up living in the household of the wealthiest, most powerful person in the world. And and instead chose to be mistreated with the people of God. He knew what he was choosing. He knew what he was giving up. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking for what comes after death, as we sang. It's not death to die. Moses believed it. Paul believed it. Christians throughout history have believed it and proven it true. One such Christian was Borden of Yale. I've mentioned him before. He was the young heir of the Borden uh, dairy farm. And when William Borden, um, after he came into contact with the gospel, he was, he was willing to give up all his wealth as the heir to the Borden dairy estate so that he might become a missionary. And while he was at Yale, he refused to buy himself a car and instead save that money to give that money to missionaries. It would be hard to imagine somebody giving up the money they might have for a a car insurance, let alone the money to have a car, and gave all of that money to missions. I would love it if that's what our college students did. That was their heart. They understood what their purpose was. To see beyond just transportation, but God's purpose in the world. One friend expressed that Bill was throwing himself away as a missionary. And after he graduated, he turned down multiple high-paying job offers in order to pursue world missions. He finally set sail for the East in 1913 to bring the gospel to Muslims. And that same year, while he was in Egypt, he uh, contracted spinal, spinal meningitis and died. And when the news of William... Borden's death was cabled back to the U.S. His story was written about in almost every major newspaper of the time. One writer said, A wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself. In a way so joyous, catch that, a way so joyous and natural that it seemed to be rather a privilege than a sacrifice. And consider the impact of that testimony upon the world. Every American newspaper, and what they hear is this man joyfully gave it all up and had no regrets that the Lord took his life at such a young age. Because he he understood the Lord's purpose for him. And this is also why in verse 15, Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, 
He's not praying that the disciples would be saved from loss or persecution. His concern is not for their bodies. His concern is not for their reputations or for their hurt feelings. But rather, his concern is that their souls would be kept safe. He's worried about their souls. That's what he's praying for. He doesn't want them to make shipwreck of their faith. So his concern is not for their physical safety, it's for their spiritual safety. It's interesting, this is also why Paul asserts just days before his death, at the very end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 18, Paul writes, again, days before his death, Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Lord kept him safe spiritually. He didn't keep him safe from losing his head. And Paul knew it. The safety that we need to be concerned about is our spiritual safety, not just our physical or emotional safety. Jesus is not asking that they be kept from suffering because he's already made clear that suffering and persecution are actually part of the Father's plan. That's how the Father accomplishes his purpose. Shows the truth about what the Bible teaches. Instead, he prays, keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is asking that they be kept from falling away. That's what he's worried about. So recognize again, the threat to us, the threat to disciples is not primarily a physical threat. Our threat is a spiritual threat. And this is especially important for us who live in America to recognize. Because the spiritual threat here for Christians is much stronger than the physical threat. You could say it's the most dangerous place on earth. Consider the illustration Jesus gives with the parable of the sower. In fact, go ahead and flip there. Luke chapter 8 It's a very familiar parable. Maybe his most famous parable. That or the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as you know, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives this parable about a sower. A man goes out to sow and the seed lands on different kinds of soil. But only one bears fruit. And then he explains to his disciples the meaning of this parable in verse 11. He says the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. That's what he's praying. Keep them from the evil one. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, some suffering, they fall away. And as for that which fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast 
in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So note again what kills faith in that parable. Lies, the devil comes, takes it away. They believe lies. Trials and love of this world. Love of the things that the world offers. That's what threatens us. Which brings us to the third request he makes. Set them apart from the world. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now when Christians hear the word sanctify they typically tend to think of the theological term that refers to the process of spiritual growth, the growing in maturity in Christ. But that's actually not what Jesus is referring to here. He's not asking that they would grow spiritually by investing themselves in the truth, although he would have nothing against that. He would want that to happen, but that's not what he's praying for. What he's praying for is that they would be set apart from the world. Which is what the term sanctify means, to be set apart, to be distinct. And this is clarified in even how he uses the term in verse 19 in reference to himself. The word consecrate, as we see in the ESV, is actually the same word used in verse 17 and then twice again in verse 19. The same word. He wants them to be set apart and influenced by the world just as he was. He came into the world to save the world, not to be, you know, molded into it. Keep them separate just as I was separate. He's concerned that as they finish, they pursue finishing his work, that the world will influence them instead of them influencing the world. That's what he's concerned about. Keep them set apart. He doesn't want them to end up like Hymenaeus or Alexander in 1 Timothy, who, forsaking the word, made shipwreck of their faith. Or like Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, who forsook Paul and gave up the mission, having loved this present world. John Bunyan's treatment of Demas... And the silver mine in Pilgrim's Progress is, is a heartbreaking illustration. That's where he gets it from. Having loved this present world, Demas has forsaken me. Jesus wants them to remain set apart from the world and its enticements, just as he was. So the point is, we're not supposed to blend in with the world. We're supposed to stick out like a sore thumb. But as the Japanese proverb says... The nail that sticks out is the one that gets hit. And I was reminded of this proverb when I heard about the soon-to-be-released movie Silence that's going to be coming out this year about the persecution of Christians in Japan during the 16th century. This proverb came true in that era when the Tokugawa shoguns threatened by all foreign influence, sought to wipe out Christianity in Japan. And on one occasion, 70 victims were crucified upside down 
and slowly drowned as the tide came in. Christians are to stand out. And that will mean they're going to get hit. But it's better to be hit by the world than to fall in love with this world. It's far better. What does it gain a whole man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? So Jesus asked that God would sanctify them in truth. So this means that their ongoing separation is going to be twofold. First, it was accomplished as Jesus separated himself from them when he went to the cross. When Jesus separated himself from them, he went to the cross, took their sin. And secondly, they are sanctified through the ongoing influence of the word. The truth which they have received and which will continue to be revealed to them by the Holy Spirit is what is going to keep them set apart. It's what's going to keep them safe from the world. Which tells us that the way to fight worldliness in our lives is through the reading, the listening, and the applying of the Word of God. That is how we fight worldliness. It's through the Word. It also shows us that the greatest threat to the mission's success and the greatest threat to the souls of the disciples is the influence of the world. And the greatest defense is the influence of the Word. When American doctors flew over to Liberia last year to help deal with the Ebola epidemic, they would never have treated people without the protection of their uh, personal protective gear. They look like hazmat suits, right? But many naive Christians think that they can forsake the Word of God and not be, not be threatened at all by the influence of the Word. Sorry, the influence of the world. And recognize America is the world on steroids. We are bombarded with worldliness. And understand that the world is poison. It's poison. And the word is both a hazmat suit and the antidote to that poison. And this is why Paul concludes in his letter to the Philippians with these words. Philippians chapter 4, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Talking about Christians who have wandered away. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. So how do you know if you are unduly influenced by the world. I think, first of all, here's some thoughts. If you're offended or threatened when I say that the world is poison, that bothers you. But consider this. If we are in the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse is happening right now, and all of a sudden you have a, a hankering for human brains, 
there's a problem. That's the point I'm making. If you're offended by the fact that I say the world is poison, that's a problem. If you would honestly rather be someplace else right now than with fellow believers hearing the Word of God, or if you're finding little joy in the Word of God, just words. Or you're more annoyed by other Christians rather than encouraged by them. Or rather than longing to want to help them. Or you don't pray. Or the things that you do pray for are the same things that any unbeliever would pray for. Same things a Mormon would pray for. Or even a Muslim. Or if you're not looking and praying for opportunities to share your faith. Now the reason I bring up those instances is because they they just fall out of a person understanding our purpose in this life is to know God and to help others grow spiritually and to share the gospel. And the things, the thing that the only thing that's going to keep us from pursuing that aim is the world. It's going to tear us away from that purpose. That's the threat. The world wants you not to accomplish this purpose. The evil one strategizes against us to keep us focused on those simple three things. And he's good at it. He's really good at it in this country. So are you still living devoted to this mission that Christ gave the church? Or has the world allured you to start following into its path of destruction? You don't want to be like a ship that ignores the warnings of a lighthouse because it's trusting in its own instruments then it ends up getting shipwrecked against the rocks. You don't want to be that ship. Trust the lighthouse. What's the remedy to worldliness? Again, it's, it's the Word of God. Read, listen to, discuss, devote yourself to the Word of God. As Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Keep them set apart in the truth. In conclusion, Jesus prays for His disciples that the Father would keep them in your name, that is, that they would be unified in their understanding of what truth is and unified in their purpose. He asks that they'd be kept from the evil one, that is, that they'd be guarded spiritually, and that they would not lose their joy by putting it in temporal things. They wouldn't lose their joy. They'd maintain their joy. Keep them from the evil one. And thirdly, keep them set apart from the world. Guard them from the influence of this world so they don't make shipwreck of their faith. And if these are the things that Jesus prays for His disciples, we should also be praying these things for one another. This is how we need to pray for one another. Because these are the threats that we face in this life, especially in this country. Let's pray. Father, I do want to echo this prayer then. 
knowing that you deeply desire to answer it. I ask that you would keep my brothers and sisters here in your name. Helping them specifically understand, know how they are to serve you in this life. What their routine should look like. Lord, what things they should commit themselves to. What things they should decommit themselves to. So that they would not... They would not miss out on your purpose for them. Keep them also from the evil one. Help them to remain steadfast in your word. Give them the joy of Christ. That the joy that they have would help them to transcend the troubles of this life. Help them to taste it in the songs that they sing. To believe it and be comforted in it as they read Your Word and and they hear of other Christians, and as Christians spend time with one another, that they would feel the joy and love of Christ. They would know it. And finally, keep them set apart from the world. Guard them from the world and its influence. Help them to see worldliness and all of its temptations. Lord, help them to be threatened by it. To not be deceived. To not take that threat lightly. Because clearly, your son didn't take that threat lightly. We want to be faithful to you. Ask that you would do these things so that you would be glorified and your son also would be glorified in us and through us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.